so your jaws didn't line up. Jaws didn't line up. So what, is that how your bite sits? Yeah. In fact, the teeth from the left side of my mouth don't touch at all. Really? Mm-hmm. And that disqualifies you from flying a plane because of what? Uh, let's see. The, the official response after my final appeal was relatively interesting. It was that that could cause a slight facial malformation, which could re- result in an improper fit of the oxygen mask on the helmet, which could result in high altitude and blackout and loss of the aircraft. Okay. Is that... It could. Doesn't necessarily mean it will. Yeah, it, it was It was a way to weed me out. Yeah. So is it that... So you grew up wanting to fly. Mm-hmm. You were an Air Force brat. I was an Army brat, actually. Army brat. Yeah. The, the only thing worse than an Army base is a Marine Corps base. The best base out there is an Air Force base. Uh, I've heard. So, yeah, it, it's really come down comes down to how they plan it. And usually barracks are the last thing they plan. Mm-hmm. And the Air Force is one of the first things they plan. You got to have a runway, got that. You got to have a place to stay, got that. Okay, now we need an officer quarter, a place for them to play. And, oh, we need some officers too. Yeah, B-O-Q, B-Q. Rest Marine Corps. I'm an Army guy. Well, there you go. Enlisted. And so, I never found a barracks that I terribly enjoyed. Exactly. And the worst thing would be if you were an if enlisted Marine. Say, hey, well, throw a tent over there and make them stay. Yeah. I know a few Marines. They tend to like the great crowns the best, yeah. purple ones. But I always tend to make fun of my Air Force buddies that you you weren't really in in a service. You were more at a hotel, five star luxury resort, and they don't disagree. They're exactly right. Which may make them the smarter ones. Yeah, a little more cushy. Yeah, I've heard stories. I I was out before anything happened with desert. Um, uh, no, actually, I went in Desert Storm, but that ended in like five minutes. So, actually, never went over there. And then when everything kicked back up and post 9-11, I was already out. My, I thought for a hot minute, hey, maybe I'll go back in and help out with these guys. And then my, I looked at my wife and she said, no, no, it's other people's jobs now. You've already done your part, so didn't, but uh, got plenty of friends that went over there, and everybody complained about how great the Air Force guys always had it. Yeah, it's nice being behind the line. Yeah. Well, so you still ended up going in kind of DOD, and as a manufacturer rep, then over time you went into IT. Yeah. Uh, the company, when I came back from Germany, that was 91, uh, I was brought back and given responsibility for basically keeping track and managing our field sales force around the globe. Okay. So that was a, a hundred plus, hundred plus reps in six countries. And so basically I was just a guy, logistical guy in that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, our growth wasn't consumer technology products. Okay. Back then, the, the number one retail brand was Packer Bell. And we, we had Packer Bell. Uh, we had Citizen Printers at the time. We had Lexmark when they were brand new. And that all required know-how, technique, sales. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was still new in the retail world. 
we're still trying to figure out how do we make money in these these things. Um, believe it or not, in the early 90s, a lot of buyers still thought computers were a fad. They're going to go away. And so they didn't want to commit to it. And the challenge for um, us was there were so many people on the market. They're all trying to get a foot in the door. And everybody had, an, had, a, had an idea of what a computer product should look like. So I, I like technology. I was always into it. Uh, I was I started as a demonstrator when I was in high school. So I would go to the store and put on the name badge and Commodore computers at the time and, mm-hmm. and sell them and help people with them. And then when I got to the office, I realized, well, we sell computers, but we don't use computers the way they're meant to be used. We had one person who had a color printer. Her computer only had a three-and-a-half-inch floppy drive. We had no network. The only guy that had both a three-and-a-half and five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy drive. No token ring? Nope, no nothing. Banging vines? Nope. We didn't have anything. Um, although Banging Vines was a pretty neat OS at the time. But yeah. that's a whole other story. The, it was big in DOD. Yeah, it was. It sure was. In fact, my, my first network, my first uh, um, uh, IT show was actually here in Dallas in 93. Mm-hmm. And Banyan Vines was the headliner there. They, and, were giving, they were giving away to Hurley, too. I remember that one. When I was first starting out in IT, I did a contract through a service provider for GTE properties. Mm-hmm. And it was going around to all the GTE facilities in that night, upgrading all these x86s to banging vines. And it was popping in a three-and-a-half-inch floppy and changing the autoexec.bat file and remarking out memory allocation and setting up banging. Did that for about six months. It was pretty tedious. Yeah. But see, my first OS there was uh, was uh, Netware. Okay. Novell Network. Novell Network. Right, yeah. right when three one came out. And same thing. Uh, it's okay. Update the stack. Get the drivers. Hope it works. Mm-hmm. Get some cable pulled. Buy a bunch of cards. Hope they fit. I got to work on that one over at uh, Children's Hospital here in Dallas. Which that was kind of a funny story. Um, didn't take terribly long. It wasn't as tedious, but that was 97-ish. Mm-hmm. And then 98, my oldest daughter was born. And when she was six months old, she had to have a surgery. She had a benign tumor in her nose. And I was pacing the hospital like I knew where I was going. Because I did. I spent months there, you know, helping upgrade this uh, Novell Netware. And eventually... Uh, I wandered into a place I shouldn't have been. My dad was following me. I was a nervous wreck. First kid, surgery, benign. Didn't know it was a benign tumor, but it was It was making it really difficult for her to feed because she couldn't breathe and eat at the same time. So I'm this nervous wreck, and then some, some guy grabs me by the shoulder, and I immediately turned around and grabbed this wrist. I was on edge and threw the guy down, and it turned out to be security. My dad hopped in between us and goes, hey, he's just nervous. His daughter's in surgery. You're not supposed to be here. But I was probably edit this part out. It was still, looking back on it, it was funny. That day I was just, I was a mess. I bet. So, go ahead. Yeah, you were interrupted. Oh, no, it's it's a little memory lane there. Talk about technology in the old. But, yeah, 
so anyway, we we had a sneaker net. It wasn't efficient. If one person's on vacation, you lock through offers. We're all we're all short on the stick. Mm-hmm. So I convinced the owners that it's time to invest in a network. It's time to modernize. We sell technology. Let's let's look like a high tech company. And got the okay, and so got Novell Network. Built that server, installed that, taught people how to use it. Central file storage, backup, central printing. Um, first internet account, which was a, a dial-up proxy server, on demand. That was interesting. Uh, first mail account was AT and T Global, which was a uh, a fifteen minute dial-out schedule to retrieve and send mail. I had an email address that was massive; it was like some eighty-two characters long. <laughs> because of the, the, the subdomains on it. Um, needless to say, business cards look pretty horrible. We added email addresses to it. But it was a start. Yeah. And uh, it just evolved from there. You know, from there, I started doing, it's like, oh, we can do better with data. So I was a big DB3 guy at the time and uh, uh, built a, uh, a database and, and a DOS-based interface for it. And we started tracking our commissions that way. It saved us a huge amount of money. Because anybody can do it. We had an old Xenix system that, that did it before. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't work. Um, and it just grew. It evolved. And I went from uh, the field sales guy to a product manager on, on computers. And then slash the MIS director. And after a while, I realized I liked the technology better than the sales side. Sure. And so I had a chance to go into healthcare in the late 90s into a, a startup of all things. And, this is pre-HIPAA. Uh, this is right when it came out. So that was 97 when I hit. And uh, 96 is when uh, the first first legislation passed. Okay. So I got in when I was trying to figure out what the heck it meant. Uh, because it was written to be vague so it can morph with time. Yeah. The challenge is it left a lot of... A lot of uh, Unknowns in it. So we're just trying to figure out what was and what wasn't. Sure. So you spent most of your career then in healthcare. And yeah, I spent a few years there. Had my first my first layoff with uh, the bubble burst in '99. Mm-hmm. Uh, the investors pulled out except for one, he, but he couldn't afford to fund the company at the level of, the size it was. So they downsized immediately. Uh, I reported to the CIO. He was no longer there. The CEO was gone. Uh, the COO became the C of everything, and uh, they hired me back as a consultant. So I actually started doing some consulting work for the company. And it just so happens, one of the guys that did work for us in Germany when I was still over there was active duty Air Force. When he got out, I needed someone to take over product management when I moved into technology full-time. And they asked if I knew anybody. And I did. I said, he's just got out of the Air Force. He was one of our best demonstrators in Europe. He really knows his stuff. I think he'd be great at this. He has that personality. So they brought him in. They interviewed him. They hired him. He took over product management of the, of the technology products. And uh, he and I worked together for that. Uh, we're still friends, actually. But uh, he was hired away to buy a competitor when Compaq was big in the market. Uh, early to mid-90s, I should say. And over after a few years, uh, again, one of those guys who didn't like technology, didn't thought it was a fad, came to him, a new partner, and said, well, I want you to, to write a business plan to get rid of your department. Well, he didn't like that, so he just quit. 
And uh, the president of Compaq, he and we're good friends. So he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll front your first commissions if you start a company I work for, you, work, you represent me. And so talked to his wife, maxed out the credit cards, hired a bunch of people over the weekend, started the company, uh, sold some space from some other former co-workers of ours who were in mm-hmm. office up in Addison, and then started uh, asking me to come work for him for a couple of years. So when this event in 99 took place, I said, okay, here's the deal, but I'm helping the other company out. So it'll, it won't interfere with business, but I'll be consulting with them. And he said, okay, come on board. So I uh, left there on a Friday, started here on a Wednesday, and was back in the military market. By this time, it's my first CIO role, and this time I was building the systems. Uh, we were building the teams. We were fixing the problems. We weren't just selling stuff. Uh, we did only technology products, and uh, we built the first web-based interface uh, for inventory management in the military market. Uh, we're the only, we can get inventory back about what's in the stores faster than the military retailers could because it took them up to a week sometimes. We can do it in near real time. Um, we use that actually. Globally. Globally. Uh, we, we use the human element. Leverage the internet, uh, leverage technology, and leverage handheld devices, uh, basically Windows mobile units at the time, mm-hmm. uh, to gather, collect data, and send it back. So we did things that people weren't, weren't looking at, but we were just geeks. We loved it. We saw, we saw a way to use it and leverage it, and we sold the products. So we can get a good got a good deal on them. You had a great demo. Yeah, it was awesome. The um, and that worked really well. Um, the other thing I'm real proud of there was uh, um, PCs are big and bulky, and the, what you were at that time around 2000 2003, what you bought in the U.S. market was one or two generations ahead of any other retail market around the world. And what you bought in a military base overseas was a U.S. product, so you, which meant you couldn't get it repaired overseas. They couldn't get the parts. So that put the military retailers, Nexcom, Avis Marine Corps, in a hard, hard place because mm-hmm. you're a serviceman. You're there. You have a problem with your computer. They can't fix it. So you spend 140 bucks to ship it back. Hopefully in six to eight weeks, you might get it back or it might be another six to eight weeks afterward. And you have to pay for another 140 bucks to ship it back to you. And it goes through the post office. And if you're stuck in a, uh, a consulate somewhere, it may be too big to put through the diplomatic pouch, which means you can't get it. So uh, the military was actually looking at exiting the PC business and just about did. And really? We, we convinced them otherwise. So if you, were, if you were on base in Stuttgart, you wouldn't have been able to go buy a laptop if you were an E5 and need to get a new laptop. Correct. That was almost gone. Almost gone. And for a while, for a few years, Compaq was the only brand you can buy overseas. And that was because of us. Uh, we convinced Compaq to authorize us as repair as a repair center. Mm-hmm. Um, we got the stores to give us a little bit of secured space in the warehouse where we sometimes it was just a cage, sometimes it was a little closet uh, where we can lock equipment up, keep track of it. And uh, we train a bunch of techs on how to diagnose and repair compact notebooks and desktops. Do you have some, like, sparing capacity, screens, monitors, no. RAM? Uh, we actually did it. We actually did it. Uh, we're proud of this. We can repair most things in five to seven business days um, overseas. And the way we work that is uh, we leveraged that, that web-based system we built, mm-hmm. and we extended it 
So and we connected that to Compaq's repair system so that they would look up the parts they needed. They'd validate it. We'd verify it. They'd, hey, here's what I need. Because it was all parts swap. Uh, we didn't, didn't do any board-level repair. Okay. Uh, UPS Logistics actually warehouse it all. And so we go in the system, we enter the serial number, verify the warranty, extend it if we needed to, um, put in the parts that had to go in. Uh, we had some some rules in there that said, hey, if you if you order this, you also have to order this because there's a good percent, good chance that it's failed too. You just can't verify it until you replace the first part. And then uh, their system would verify it. You know, as long as we had those orders in by 5 p.m., we had them on at 8 a.m. the next morning. Nice. What we would do is we scan them in. Uh, we consolidate all the repairs for a single work state, single repair station, and we do a FedEx International overnight uh, out to that that place. They get it, repair it, put the put everything back in the box. Uh, let us put online that hey, this has been fixed, this has been repaired, this is tested okay, it's out for the customer. Uh, Compact would say great. They put a pen on our, our account. They box everything up, put slap that FedEx return label on, or DHL depending on where they were. And it comes comes back to us in about a week. We scan that in, ship it, uh, send it back to UPS Logistics, and we get credit for the part. And we get our pay on pay on the repair. So um, it worked out really, really well. And it allowed us to continue selling computers overseas. That's, uh, that's interesting. That's uh, never even thought about any of that. That That's fascinating. So from there, you go in, you went back to healthcare? Back to healthcare, yeah. and uh, this was convenient care because uh, I, I was there for seven years, and uh, we got to the point where the owner just he really wanted to. As we grew, he really wanted oh, to have a convenient care. Uh, convenient care is is walk in, no appointment healthcare, uh, like you, a doc in a box type, kind of like it. It's but they're not staffed with doctors or staffed with nurse practitioners, so they're designed to be in high 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 retail. Uh, high traffic retail areas. So you might know Minute Clinic or Take Care inside of CVS or Walgreens. Mm-hmm. Uh, Target had their own uh, clinics in some locations. Um, they actually had one in Frisco up here before CVS bought them out. And uh, that was the top three in the market, uh, Walgreens, CVS, and Target. Um, and we were the largest non-corporate owned entity in the market. Okay. And so this was 2006. It was a brand new industry. Um and the interesting thing there is all the news reports about people are going to die thinking it's a it's a hospital or the exact same news stories about the doc in the box, the urgent care facilities in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. The exact same headlines. And that was a really interesting thing to go through. But we started building out our clinics in Minneapolis, and uh, the largest competitor we had, uh, well, the largest competitor in the market at the time Beautiful clinics, overspent, went bankrupt. We had the option to buy them out, which made us the largest. So uh, we got their clinics in the North and South Carolina and the Colorado market. And they had the Walmart contract for those markets. And so uh, when you walk in that front wall at Walmart, Walmart they call it the vendor wall. Those are all non-Walmart-owned entities. Uh, the optical shop's a whole interesting story. And uh, that was us. So we, we built those out, and we took integrated that company, uh, took over their operations, got them cleaned up. And um, right when we got everything going, yeah, we, we finally hit cash neutral, uh, is when the housing bust hit in 2008. 
So that was my first thing in which we had a man worth $100 million and a, and a private equity firm worth over $100 billion. Had a big fight and call each other to the table and call each other's bluff and both walked away and left us with nothing. And wow. we, had, we actually had to liquidate the company. So we went three years, zero to, to cash neutral on the trend for positive. And uh, they got spooked by the market, had a big argument, and said, okay, liquidate. So I was retained to liquidate the company this time. So <laughs> you got these milestone markers in your career. I've got dot-com bus. Now I've got the housing mm -hmm. crisis. We may be in the midst of whatever that next month we historically term in a few years. I'm not sure what we call this one. Yeah, that's inflation true. the way it is right now. But and That was interesting, though, because I'm a big believer no matter what the market does, there's some segment that's doing well because of it. Always. And in that case, in 2008, it was mortgage banking. Not necessarily the mortgage banking front end. It was a mortgage banking service on the back end. Mm -hmm. So there was a company in San Diego that was a boutique company for a long, well, large number of years. It was founded by a patent attorney. Who's, he helped a friend out, and he, found it, he did well at it, in which they processed the hazard claims, or the, the homeowner's claims, on foreclosed, pre-foreclosed, and REO properties. And so those are all means the bank owns them, or it's mm -hmm. about to own them. So in 2008, with the housing bust, the banks were getting properties back left and right. And so the inventory of all these, these foreclosed homes was huge. And usually there's a good chance in a foreclosure process that there's going to be some damage on the property because the homeowner couldn't maintain it. That's why they couldn't make the payment. And so they had to assess that. And if there was damage, file the claim and take the claim all the way through. And that's what we did. So the business was booming. Um, they had a Dallas office. They hired me. I walked in, and I was just shocked because they had folding tables going down the hallway because there was no room for anybody. People working in the kitchen, people working to pull out the reception desk and put some more tables in the corner. Um, the building they were in was just packed. They had two suites there. They took out the walls of some offices to get some more room. And uh, they found that, okay, great, this is going well. We need a new space. Hey, I started in November, uh, first part of November that year. And two weeks later, found out they're moving to a new space. The end of the year, they already terminated the two leases. What was your role? I was the IT manager. IT manager, okay. So I reported this to the CFO, um, and they brought me in to help them uh, create some policy procedure, put some structure in place, fix a few problems, and help get over this growth spurt they had. And uh, quickly found that no one's ever built out a, an office before. They had no idea what they were doing. So they thought, hey, yeah, you just need a couple of weeks to get some furniture and put some computers in there, and you'd be okay. <laughs> well, the problem was it was it was an old AT&T building that was completely vacated. And they pulled, we, we would have been the f one of the first tenants in that building since the vacation. Vacation, that sounds good. And then, uh, but when AT&T left, they pulled all the copper and everything out. So it was an empty shell. So what we found out, I convinced them, you need more time than that. I need 90 days to get circuits ordered and pulled. And, and uh, so AT&T actually worked with us. We got a T1 temporarily to get us by. Um, the landlords were great. They 
let me walk the building until I found a space I can throw up a couple of temporary doors mm -hmm. and use it until our space was built out. And I taught every manager how to crimp cable. Yeah, we we strung cable from the across the ceilings into pods and rented a bunch of furniture and and somehow made it work. Uh, we closed that last business day of the year, and uh, we opened the next first business day in January. And we're doing business. Um, so I became the facilities manager at that point. Okay. So I finished the build out, uh, did an expansion, uh, looked at some additional space, got everything worked out. Uh, this is also when Sox was was big, mm -hmm. uh, and as an outsourced provider of financial services for the mortgage banking industry, uh, we had to be Sox compliant as well. And sure. we weren't. In fact, we were failing all of our audits. We had two audits from every banking client every year, and so we, we had seven major clients and some minor clients, and we were at risk of losing all the business. And it was it was all it was all control. What are your controls? What are your policies? What are your procedures? And we had nothing. And so that's turns out was what they really wanted me to do because they didn't understand what it was. And that's fine. They didn't have anyone there that did that before. And that's what I did. Spent three years uh, kind of getting things in place and getting things going. And then they realized that it's not going to get any bigger than it is now. And they decided to put it on the market. Right. So you had to build all these procedures around SOX compliance. Previously, you had to do that with HIPAA. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um, and so you, you tend to gravitate towards highly regulated markets? Not on purpose. It, uh -huh. it just kind of works that way. You're in the university system now, right? Yes, so. I am. And um, it is, it's a good example of the thing about technology is there's only a couple of parts of business that really touch all parts of the business. You know, one's accounting and finance. You had to pay the bills. You have mm -hmm. to HR is another. You have to make sure people are paid. You, you follow the rules, regulations, get what's done done. And you know, for the most part, accounting, finance, and HR doesn't change much from industry to industry. Yeah, there's some things nuances about it, but people don't go out and say, "Hey, I need an HR person experienced in X." Oh, yeah, it helps, but it's more of a transitional thing. IT is about the only other place like that in which we touch every part of the business, especially today. Uh, even modern manufacturing, you'll, you'll see more technology on the floor than you do people. Mm -hmm. um, a lot more automation. Yeah. I mean, look, look at most. Uh, uh, my brother-in-law worked for Abbott Labs for a number of years until he retired. And we were talking about how technology has evolved over the years. He goes, yeah, I used to go into our plants. And what used to be a lot of people on an assembly line became three guys in a control room. And they were the operators of the plant. Um, because the, the technology came that far, and this was 10 years ago. And so you look at it today and how technology's really changed. It's no longer a computer on a desk with a printer. It's, oh, I needed my email. used to be your job as a technologist was put a computer on a desk, make sure the applications are installed and working. They can log in and they can print. And then the Internet said, oh, I need to be able to browse the Internet and send and receive email. And then it became security. Mm -hmm. And then it became, and then it became, and then it became, and it's evolved. And we saw this, this is one neat thing about my career, and when I look back on, on that, I've worked through every part, every part of that evolution of technology and business. And I've seen it evolve, and I've been lucky enough to be in a position in which I can have 
the ability to implement those changes and not just get stuck in a rut and do the same thing for 20 years and then look back and say, what do you mean technology's not working anymore? What do you mean we're not aligned with the business? And that's really what's happened is technology started stagnating. It was a service center. I got to rotate my child's tires, get an oil change, wash the mm-hmm. windows, give me a car wash. And in some places, they treat technology just like that. It's the service center. Can't print, can't log in, computer's not working. Here, fix it. I'm going to lunch, be back later. Right. And so then you have this big diversion between what can technology do for you versus how does the organization view technology. And that's really where things, you see a lot of challenges today. And that's where I've been successful, is helping a company understand technology is not just a service center. It's a valuable strategic asset for you if you leverage it correctly. But that also means you need to have the people in technology that understand that. And that's a big change. Because, let's face it, most technologists were introverts. Mm -hmm. They gravitated toward technology because they didn't have to deal with people. And when they did, it was virtual through an email or a chat or some other remote means in which they didn't have to talk to someone face-to-face. Right. Uh, I'll never forget the first time I walked into a room full of programmers. You open the door and it was all dark and I hit the lights and I was like, boy, almost World War Is there anybody awake? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, wow, all these glows and monitors. And it turns out it was just calming. It was just, you're in your world, you're focused on what's in front of you, they yeah. glow the monitors, There's you have your headphones on, there's no distraction, you get in that zone and you just go. But those days are almost over because technology is part of an organization as a strategic asset, a strategic partner. You can't just be that introvert anymore. You have to step out of your box. You have to talk to people, build the relationships, work with them to understand what their problems are. You can't rely on someone else to do that for you anymore. So how do you, when you go into a situation, because we were talking before, you're kind of a Mr. Fix-It, and that's kind of what you've articulated. You're, whether it's in the HIPAA world, SOX world, now it's higher education, and there's a lot of requirements around that. You're going in fixing not only an infrastructure, an IT organization, but how it aligns within an organization. That would almost seem like it's probably job number one before any kind of equipment or service that's being provided or is or those parallel paths. How do you how do you build that alignment? You you use that word alignment. Yeah. And uh well that's where I call my seven pillars of technology. Um and it's looking at everything based upon seven core elements. Okay. And it's a framework that's been successful for me. And the first part that most people always overlook is people. Uh Everybody can go in and rip and replace technology. You can come and say, yeah, that's old stuff. That's not going to work. There are better ways to do it. Rip it out, put it in. And there's the tenure of the the two-year CIO. Um, a lot of CIOs will go in, and they, they're great at one or two things. So they'll go in to do that, and they, they're stuck. They don't know what to do next. And they do this for big companies. And because they were big companies, other big companies say, hey, I want, I need you because you just did that. for You fixed this for these guys. But there's a reason they left after a year and a half, two years. Their trick's gone. They're done. They don't know what else to do. They just come in and upgrade. You, you fix a few things. You, re, you replace this. You upgrade that. Those things are better. You get some, some low-hanging fruit off the table, and, and now the hard part comes. Yeah. And so they leave. And what's usually left out is people. 
um, because you can rip out the technology, but the people are still there. Mm-hmm. You can rip out the people, and you have nothing. So you can't just rip replace people, and especially in today's market. There's just not enough of them. So what you need to do is understand that there is value in the knowledge those people have just from being there, knowing why things are the way they are, and understanding, okay, what motivates that individual? And what do they know? And what can they do versus what they're doing today? So often I've gone to a company and say, okay, tell me about the staff. So, oh, so-and-so is not very good. They're lazy. They don't do a whole lot. It's been here a long time. We might need to get rid of him. Well, you, you get sit down and talk to with him. You realize this guy is a fountain of knowledge. He has technical skills that he can teach anybody, but he's been cubbyholed because no one knows how to deal with him. Right. And so you have this valuable resource you're talking about getting rid of that you couldn't, aff- you couldn't afford to rehire. So you always go in and look at the people first. What skills are here? Do it. You know, what talent do I have? What are the motivations? Are the people, sometimes it's just you have the right person in the wrong seat. Put that person in the right seat. Let them leverage your skills, their talents, what, what motivates them, what, what drives them in a way that helps support the organization. And then you go back and you say, okay, here's the people I have. Here's where we are. Let's look at the structure for these people. What are we doing? What do we have? And that's the next part is systems and, and, and uh, applications on those pillars is I have the right people, but do we have the right systems? Because oftentimes I go in and we hear, everybody says we have to hire so many more IT people. It's like, I can't just keep hiring people. I call them human band-aids. If you can't do something, you hire a bunch of people until you can. Right. And then it's inefficient. It just costs a lot of money. And then when the business slows down, you have to lay off a whole bunch of people. Which costs a lot of money. Which costs a lot of money. And it just kills your reputation and morale. And so the uh, first thing I do is let's not look at what you're doing. Let's look at how you're doing it. Just because, and how long you've been doing this. Any company that's been around more than a dozen years or so has led, uh, legacy systems and products and procedures in place. And oftentimes you keep doing the same thing for a dozen years without ever relooking at that process. And the process becomes, a, it might be good when you're a small company, it might be okay when you're a medium company, or if you're a large company, it fails. There's too much, too many steps, too many busy human elements in it, too many step chances for mistakes. And so when you look at the processes, you can start defining, well, there's a much better way for us to do that today. It may not have existed five years ago, but you've been doing this for 10 years. Let's take a fresh look at the process. Let's look at how we're doing things today. Let's rethink it. How often do you think that a company, a university, healthcare institution, or just a private enterprise, how often should they be looking at their processes? Continuously. Continuously. You You should be looking for ways to tweak it all the time because that makes it a lot easier. Uh, You should always do a formal review at least every two years, if not annually. Okay. Simply because things change. People change. Moore's Law. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. Manufacturers release updates to their products all the time. Yeah. Software publishers do as well. And if, if you're keeping things up to date to make sure you're with all the security patches, everything else as well, it's a good chance there's new features and functionality you didn't use before that could help you out. And oftentimes it's just ignored. Keep you from getting more human band-aids. Well, that and 
if you're if you're have your head down and you're just trying to get through the day, get through your workload, the last thing you want to do is say, oh, let me stop and take a look at these release notes and see what's coming down the pipe. And let me stop and take some time to see if we can innovate. Let me stop and take some time to determine what else we can do. It's a trap. If you don't make that time, you're bound to get stuck in a rut. And I actually have a, a term for that. I call it the tactical trench. If you're in that rut for so long, it's so deep. When you stop and look up and think you're seeing the big picture, you're seeing the walls of a, a trench that you dug for yourself without realizing it. Hmm. And so your view of the big picture is what you're doing today. And you'll never see beyond it. And it's a trap. You know, so many places, that's what you get stuck in. Okay. So that's three pillars now? Let's see. We got people. People. We got uh, systems applications. Uh, another one, security. Security is a big one today. Um, simply become, well, heck, you look what's going on you know, in the Middle East, well, in uh, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had another briefing today on this. I had an FBI briefing two weeks ago uh, on foreign actors. You know, here, the, the big foreign An FBI briefing. Mm-hmm. And just for people that are listening, you're, we, we didn't get into this. You're the CIO of? I'm the interim CIO at Tarleton State University. Okay. It's the largest school in the Texas A&M system. There are 14 of them. It's, all, it's also the first... It's bigger than A&M. A&M itself is, is larger, but in the, what we call the system schools outside okay. of A&M proper uh, were the largest. So outside of College Station. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, university's been around since the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, we joined the A&M system in the early 1900s, like you know, 1905, 1906, thereabouts. Uh, so we have a long history with A&M. Um, and the challenge with that is there's the system which which works on all with all of us, um, and they have uh, a SOC. They have uh, services and support for all the schools because the schools range in size, uh, from smaller colleges to uh, to Tarleton, for example. And each of those, because of their size, they might be revenue constrained on what they can do. Mm-hmm. So the system provides. Uh, unified services support and guidance to help meet state and federal requirements, uh, help with security or other other applications, contracts, or systems, um, which is a great help. It's it's nothing like saying, hey, I, I need some help with the security stuff. What can you do? Well, call the SOC. They're there to help. And that's a great service they provide. But the challenge there is we're all connected. And as a university system, we do a lot of research. In fact, Tarleton State University was just designated as a high high research institute as of March 1st this year because um, research is a big part of who we are as, as the university grows. But within the system, there are a number of DOD contracts as well. So uh, we get FBI briefings like a lot of other private companies do in certain segments because of the research. Uh, we are active targets of state-sponsored actors. Yeah. And the CMMC space is that way too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's always an interesting thing when you when you jump to another industry. You realize, you know, you never thought of higher education as this big complex thing. Well, well, in fact, it is. Uh, it's it's kind of like being in several different industries at the same time uh, because we're supporting students, we're supporting faculty. That's more like traditional business, traditional customers. But then you, you have healthcare. We have healthcare, so we, we have a bank. Yeah, so we have PCI compliance. Um, so it's like we have all the regulated things right here in one place at one time. Hey, you have HIPAA, you have PCI, 
but probably I would imagine socks is one. No socks. No, uh, socks. no socks. But we do have uh, state and federal re- requirements on top of uh, for higher ed that cover some of those same things. Okay. So it goes back to the different industries. It's like, well, what was nice about for me is I've been able to take that experience from all these industries and put them together. Um, and that's always one thing that's been interesting is, is how a lot of recruiters or companies say, I need a CIO from this specific industry with this specific background, with this specific skill set, because that's what we, where we are today or where we think we want to be, but we don't know. And then they say, I can't find someone. Well, what you'll find is technology kind of works across industries because that computer doesn't know what industry it's in. Sure. That operating system is the same operating system as the manufacturing or if it's in a hospital floor or a shop floor. Um, that developer, they're just developing. That they're mm-hmm. coder. They're, they're taking functional requirements and making it into a system that works. And then um, that PMO, yeah, they're just managing the process. So technology across industries is very much the same. Yeah, there's a little bit of learning here and there as you, as you go from one industry to the next. Uh, the biggest one, if you're in a non-regulated industry, going to a regulated industry, that's a huge jump. But uh, once you once you understand it, you're just, it's all about access and control. Uh, the difference is, what are you accessing and controlling? What's your focus? Is it patient data? Is it financial data? Uh, is it personal data? Is it student data? Um, so it really comes down to access and control when it comes down to what's the difference between industry and regulation. Um, and best practices just make that a whole lot easier. So security, that's pillar number four. Pillar. But that's that's probably one I want to spend a little bit more time on, but let's go through the other pillars. Yeah, that's actually three. Because oh, three. I, uh, systems and applications I do is one. Um, and you can slice and dive this this a hundred different ways and it's with 50 pillars if you want sure. to. But um, but these are your pillars. These are my pillars. This is your this book. This is how I do it. Um, are you going to write a book? I'm, I, my wife, my daughter keeps saying I need to because I talk about it all the time uh, and I probably should put some pen to paper and just stop jabbing about it. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, the next pillar is control of security and that's govern- governance, audit, and compliance, which could be two or three if you wanted to look at it like that. Um but audit compliance, of course, goes back to regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a good best practice in which a lot of companies look at audit and compliance as bad things. When, in fact, if you just take that as a top-of-mind viewpoint, when you do any implementation, security first, compliance first, and you design everything around it, it's, it's easy. It's just a matter of making sure you, you stick to those standards. And then you have someone outside of IT come in and look over your shoulder just say, hey, yeah, is this okay? And those internal owners people tend to hate because it's a lot of extra work. And boy, what do you mean to have to change this? It's so much extra work. Well, yeah, but it's the right thing to do. If you do the right thing, you'll never have a problem. You'll rarely have a problem. Prevention versus cure. Yeah. Because the cure, let's face it, the cure sucks. There's yeah. no better way to say it. Um, but yeah, so government's audit compliant. And of course, the governance part is huge. And this takes us back to the concept of how do you align IT and business? So many times, IT becomes a black box. Stuff, money goes in, and information doesn't come back out. People talk about, okay, I'm going to manage IT. Give me your metrics. In IT, they said, I'm not going to waste my time giving you a bunch of numbers that you don't understand. And there's a communication problem there. 
which is the next pillar. We'll get back to that. Um, but the governance, you have to have top-level governance of the organization so you have visibility in IT. That means IT has to be able to communicate back. Uh, it can't be that server shop with a bunch of grease monkeys walking around your car. All right. Um, you have to be able to communicate on a business level and understand how IT supports the business. And that brings us to strategy. That governance helps with the strategy. That governance helps make sure the strategy is aligned with the organization. And that governance helps make sure that the systems you're putting in place supports the strategy of not just the IT, but therefore re goes up and supports the strategy of the organization. And that's where you have alignment. Uh, too often, IT strategies run by itself, if there is one. Mm -hmm. And they, they implement things because they're new and they're shiny objects, not because it's really needed or it's there to take care of a problem or support a strategic need. And that's that's always a challenge. Um, so we go from governance compliance and audit. I kind of group those together because it really comes down to uh, that governance usually has oversight of that in one shape, shape, way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. and that's with a governance committee and a steering committee, you know, on the strategical level and, and tactical level. But then we get to communication, and that's where a lot of places fail. IT is just a black box. Stuff goes in, nothing comes out. You don't know. You just you can't stop feeding it money because then things stop working. Um, and in many companies, that's how they see IT. It's a cost center. There's, there's no partnership. I get they don't understand the value they get out of it. And so, when they're working with IT, it's important for IT to get out of the shadows, have at least some leaders in the group, preferably the CIO or the senior manager, whoever that might be, who can communicate and understand the business, who takes the time to understand what the business is doing, what's the strategy of the business. That's the same what I did with Tarleton. The first thing I did was I read the new strategy. Tarleton Ford is what they call it. And I looked at that and I realized this strategy is, is data-driven. This is a data-informed strategy. And lo and behold, we don't have any data strategy or governance. So it kind of made the path clear is what we need to do, how we need to update ourselves and realign or change things around to support that, that university strategy. And so we came back in and took a look. And one of the first things I found was there's no communication. We don't talk within, our, within the team, let alone with other departments. And it's the same problem I've seen so many places. Because if you're back in that tactical trench, you know, digging away, trudging along your operational activities, you look up, and you, all you see is a wall of a trench. There's no one to talk to except the wall of dirt. And so you just go back, heads down, get back to work, and get things done. Do you think some of that's changed in the last couple of years with, you know, lockdowns and COVID and everything that went on there? A lot of IT had a, whether it was in K-12, colleges, it's pretty transformative, right? Mm -hmm. Even private enterprise people working from home, people still not in downtown corridors. Is that, do you, do you get a sense that there is better alignment and better, and maybe IT's not such a black box anymore? Or is it still, now we're coming out of it, let's go back to business as usual, and you guys just turn the wrenches? I think it's all across the board. Uh, I think a lot of progress has been made. There have been a lot of people in IT that have been forced to communicate, and now they found that it's not that bad. And so they're not avoiding it like they used to. Okay. That's a good thing. Um, 
I also think we've we've gotten the habit of everybody thinks everything has to be a five minute meeting or a thirty minute meeting with fifty people on board because they could, and not everything needs to be a meeting. It could be an email. Yeah, and I, so I'm I'm seeing some some challenges with I, I call it new manager syndrome. You think you have to have a meeting because you're a manager, and yet managers the higher up the chain you go, the more meetings you're in anyway. Um, but it shouldn't be forced, All right? And Sometimes just walking by someone's desk and asking them or pinging them, say, hey, do you have a minute uh, on Zoom or Teams or whatever you're using, and does can suffice without having a meeting. Um, but the other part of this is I think we're seeing the same thing on management, uh, just traditional business management. Uh, you have a lot of managers who were taught to manage by micromanaging. Mm-hmm. They want to see... Uh, and I don't think anyone's not seen this in some way, shape, or form. And those managers who couldn't wait to get people back in the office as quickly as possible, and they pushed it as soon as they could. And in fact, where I was at the time, we had a couple of managers that bought their people back in as soon as they could. And every single time someone tested positive, that someone else tested positive, they had to shift everybody back home again, and the morale just kept spiraling downward. And it just wasn't a good experience. Because, one, they're forgetting the fact these are people, like the whole people idea. Um, but they're also forgetting, why am I doing this? Is because they didn't have a comfort level in working in this new environment. They weren't comfortable not seeing people work. They weren't comfortable not being able to walk behind them and see what they're doing or listen in, listen in and do it, see what they're doing. But, but the, iron, the irony there is all the technology is in place for them to do that remotely if they wanted to. You can micromanage someone remotely, not that you should. You can see what they've done. You can, you can, if you're in a call center, you can listen in on their calls. You can barge in the calls just like you're doing a supervisor role in, in office. Sure. But they weren't willing to change how they manage. And you think back about it, most people aren't taught how to manage. They're taught you, you get a, a business administration degree. You, you're taught the the elements of management. You're taught the theory of management, the science of management. You're not taught the practical nature of management. You're not taught the psychological aspect of management. And so many people have gotten to management and they they completely screw up and fail because they don't know how. All they know how to do is emulate a manager they had in the past. Right. And they make the same mistakes that person made. Um, luckily, not everybody's like that. I was real lucky as a, as a young guy. My, my first four or five managers were just ideal guys, uh, people first guys. Here's Remember, they're a human being first. Mm-hmm. Then they're a worker second. And that, that really kind of shaped me and how I look at things. So uh, I have a biased perspective on that pers- in that regard. And then I always take, try and take that people first perspective. It's the first pillar I look at. It's the strongest pillar in, 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 in my collection because it's what makes the world go around. It makes everything work. And I've been successful because I've helped the people that work for me be successful. And you can't do that if you're not managing properly. And so to get back to your original thing, so I'm talking big circle no, here. That's fine. Is that, uh, yeah, uh, it's the black box is still there because managers, if you're 19 or not, they haven't all changed. They're, some are just clinging to the whole way of doing things because it's all they really know and understand. And they're, they're afraid of change themselves. And so they're not going to let go of doing that. And then um, 
But some in IT have realized, hey, it's not that bad. It's that person on the other side of the screen is not a scary person. It's not going to jump out from under my bed and, and tear my arms off. Um, you know, you ask them a few questions and, hey, how was your weekend? You'll be surprised. You're human beings. You know, they, they may have the same hobbies you do. They may like the same things you do. They may not, but that's okay. And that's uh, really, I think for some, it's really helped. It's really helped kind of alleviate some of those fears, uh, got them out of the box, so to speak. Um, but there's a long way to go. The good news is once you let the cat out of the bag, you can never get it all the way back in. Sure. So this will result in progress one way or the other. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Actually, I'm I'm the inverse of the uh, micromanager. I'm, if I have a weak spot, is I don't probably inspect enough. I'm more of the guy that says to the people that work for me, see that hill over there? Take that hill. And if you can, take it by next Tuesday. And if you can't, let me know that you can't get there by Tuesday. If you need something, tap me on the shoulder. Other than that, I, I try to just let people go because I want, for myself, I want to come up with creative solutions, problems. And if I tell people what to do, I'm not allowing them to create. But at the same time, where I've found problems with that philosophy is typically with younger people that want to be managed or people that have had a lot of management oversight in the past, they can sit there and go, I don't know how to self-serving, just go take the hill. I'm, go take the hill. Just doesn't matter what you use to get there. Just go get it. Yeah, give it a try. Give it a try. But sometimes it's there. And my point behind that is it doesn't, there's a blend and it comes back to people. Yeah. I've personally, I have to do a better job of understanding and discerning. Does this person need more guidance than this person? And, and each person is, uniquely different some some people they just may not have the personality if you they're task oriented you give them the task they'll go and if you give them seven steps to go get to the top of the hill and plant a flag they will follow it every day but i tend to want people to find different routes to the top of the hill and they might find efficiencies that uh, that i have blinders on too yeah that's that's exactly right i mean one of my first mentors was a uh, uh, company I worked for in Germany was was acquired by another one. It was based in Dallas. Is how I ended up here. When I came back here, uh, we would have these these sit downs of the evening just to come guide me with the politics of the company, who's who, what's going on, and then he would have these little tidbits he dropped that would just stay with me today. And the first one was really about servant leadership, which I didn't understand what that was at the time. And he said, "Okay, here's the deal." Never be afraid to hire someone smarter than you mm -hmm. because it'll make you look like a rock star. And he was right. You know, I was trying to find the best talent I can because I can't do everything. And the way I would do it isn't necessarily, like you were saying, it's, it's, I'm not going to micromanage you. I'm not going to sit there and, and tell you exactly how to do it and then stand behind you and make sure you do it that way. Yeah. You might end up doing it a way I wouldn't do it, but it might be a better way. And that's great because the way I was doing it was from 5, 10, 15 years ago. It doesn't mean it's the best way or the only way. So learn, get creative, explore, but also mm -hmm. give them a chance to, to do that. If you don't, they'll never learn. They'll never grow. They'll never get better at what they do. Yeah. And I've had people be afraid to try stuff. I don't know. Look, you're not, this isn't brain surgery. 
you're not going to kill anybody. If you make a mistake, you make a mistake. Let's just go. We'll figure out. Was that saying? I uh, I think it was attributed to Edison or Tesla or somebody inventing a light bulb. Hey, you failed at inventing a light bulb a thousand times. No, I just found a thousand ways it wouldn't work. Exactly. So yeah. you have to go through those experiences to grow, and and that can be rewarding. But I digress. You were on, so um, we were on five. Let's see, we got through people. People. Uh, we got through applications. Uh, applications and systems. We got through governance, audit compliance, and we got through communication. Uh, data. Data. Data is a big one. Let's face it, today, like at Tarleton, data is the big thing. Yeah. Uh, there is Everybody a, wants their analytics. Everybody wants their analytics. And uh, there's value in data. And today, every company is generating huge amounts of data. The challenge is back to the whole management mindset. They're still thinking, I need a report. Mm -hmm. And today they're saying, oh, I need analytics. It's like, okay, so you, you still just need a report. Yeah. But they really don't understand the value in the data. They don't understand what the data can tell them. And so we have these... these. Sometimes they force what they think the data, they want it to reinforce their own opinion, and they'll modify that data to, 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 to validate... To validate their neuroticism. Yeah, well, see, I was right. See, here's why I said what happened. Oh, look at this. Look at this data point. Look at this data point. I'll cherry pick the data to support me Yeah, from a bunch of reports and put it on a, on a slide. And the challenge there is if you can control the data from, that, from access to the data and understanding the data, you're really not getting value out of it. No. You're manipulating it. And... The big value in data is to make sure that people across the organization have access to it, and it's transparent and it's unfettered. And then it's also uh, trustworthy. You you know it's good. You can trace it back. You know exactly what it represents. You know that that data source is good and integral. And then you have people who understand those data sets, those core data sets. And those are your, your data analysts, those are your data scientists, um, which really understand the underlying data set and how those relationships evolve and how to, to get to that data and find those hidden gems. And that's where you're going to get value of the data. And once you can do that, they can generate the dashboards and the reports and all the analytics you want. They can work on the predictive analytics from that point. They can work on... Uh, automating, help, helping automate business processes because you can take data from three or four different systems and get rid of a manual process and the human error that comes with it and make things better, take less time, do more with the people you have. And that's just so huge. Um, so many companies, again, back, you've been around for a dozen years, you have probably have a dozen different data sets and just don't realize it because you don't think of a system as having its own data set when it does. Mm -hmm. And in higher ed, you have data everywhere. You have educational systems, you have ERPs, you have housing systems, you have medical systems, you you name it. We, we have it all. And But there's been a little thought put into how do I correlate all these different data sets? How do I correlate this and find the hidden gem to help me find a trend leading to a negative outcome? Or find a trend that I can reinforce to lead to a positive outcome instead? Sure. Uh, be it finding a new student, helping a student through those critical freshman year years when which, you know, in high school they knew everything. 
I got the social status quo down. I got the political status quo down. At home, I know what to do. I know who to talk to, who not to talk to, how to talk to them, who to avoid, who to hang out with. And then when you go to college, none of that matters. All right. Absolutely none of it. So a college freshman, there's a large number that never make it through the first year, or if they make it through, never come back because they just have problems adjusting. Uh, they don't know who to talk to. They don't know if they can talk to anyone. They always think it's just them. So they're going through puberty all over again. And the thing about data is we know when you're in your dorm room. We have uh, access points all over campus that tells you what room you're in, how long you've been there, what device you're using. Um, you've logged in with that device so we can tie it back to you. Uh, we know if you've been in class. We know what your GPA is doing. We we know if you're if you're hanging out in one of the computer labs or the student union or whatever it might be. But those are all in different data sets. And if we can see, hey, I'm seeing a correlation between your attendance, your grades, your visibility in the dining hall, how long you stay in your dorm room. If I see all these correlations going down to a negative path, there's a good chance that you need someone to talk to you. We don't have to wait for you to think you need help. We can just, hey, Billy, how's it going? Tough first year. Just want to check in, see how you're doing. And then just kind of monitor the situation. See how they're doing. Are they responding? What can we, how can we leverage this data to find and prevent problems so that that kid makes it through their freshman year and wants to come back because now they feel like they belong? And yeah. businesses can do that with their data. They can find those, how do I answer those, those things that we're, we're troubled with? How do we find the right customer? How do we keep our customers we have? How do we improve the services to our customers? There's a good chance you have the data, you just don't know. There's no one there who knows how to correlate it. And that's where your data scientists come in. That's where your data warehouses come in. Um, the tools that most people don't even think about today. Okay. Datos, five, six... Infrastructure. Infrastructure. It doesn't do a darn bit of good if you have no way to move information back and forth. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're in the cloud or not. You still need to get to the cloud. If you're in the cloud, it has to be the right cloud. Um, so many times, and this is something else I've been seeing a lot today, and it's kind of a scary thing in some regulated industries, is everybody has a SaaS product out there. Mm-hmm. I can go online, the credit card. It's a whole new level of shadow IT. Anybody with a credit card can go ahead and set up a system and start using it, yep. uh, regardless of your governance structure or not, um, if you have one. Um, the challenge is those people don't understand if what they're doing is running afoul of the law or not, or is actually creating more problems for the organization or not. Um, that really takes us back to data and governance. But still, even when you do that, with all those those great SaaS applications out there, you end up with four, five, six dozen. You might be duplicating what you already have on-prem, or what you already have an enterprise contract for, but the individual may find that, well, I don't, they're not going to approve this, or I don't know if we have it, or I don't care, I'm just going to do what I want because I know it. Yeah. Um, or my, my nephew's friend does a lot about computers, and so he said, this is pretty good. And they do it. They don't know why. They don't know how to secure it, manage it. And next thing you know, you have a data breach, and people want to know how it happened. But the important thing about all that is that's cloud infrastructure. We we tend to think of infrastructure as only the the cables, the the storage, the backup, the the servers, the physical stuff, access points, exactly. 
and it's part of it. Uh, and it takes us back to security and, and all the other stuff, but it's not all of it. With the cloud, uh, like my last company, uh, we took a cloud-first, cloud-only strategy. Didn't have a data center, didn't have a server closet. Closest thing I had was a, an IDF room with a firewall and a couple switches and a, a one box to control the security cameras. And the challenge there was taking people who were used to physical infrastructure and trying to build that in the cloud the way the cloud was meant to work, not necessarily by reinventing what you've already done uh, and not thinking forward, not thinking about how the new technology works. Yeah, you, you can forklift your data center, virtualize everything, and do that entire virtual infrastructure in the cloud. It's going to cost you a lot more. Mm -hmm. uh, but some people are more, more comfortable with that, or it might be a great intermediary step. But the infrastructure component is important. Uh, one, you have to understand how your different applications and systems come together, uh, which is that other tier, the other peer, pillar. Um, but also, where are we going in the future with our, our infrastructure? Uh, traditional data centers, have, they're... We've gotten much, much smaller. Um, three companies ago, I went from uh, a Colo facility with 19 racks, and we modernized and downsized to five. And we were actually on track to get down to four because of technology density increases. Yeah, virtualization. And virtualization, a huge part of it. Um, here, we have a data center that was originally built for, at Tarleton, built for a mainframe in the late, late 70s. Uh, actually, on my, I found a report on the bookshelf in my office. Was it a deck? Uh, no, it was a. There was an IBM and a Burroughs mainframe. Okay. Ironically, I learned to program on a Burroughs at a Burroughs facility outside of Munich, Germany, in 1983. It's part of a Big Brothers Big Sisters program. I was sound, assigned to American Expat. Okay. So uh, it was it was interesting to see on that inventory list in the back. Well, actually, there are two reports. One from '79 about why the university needed a computing system. And one from 83 was an outside assessment about the black box of IT, uh, which included the inventory list of the punch card readers, the mag tapes, the dry packs, the Burroughs mainframe. <laughs> it was a flashback. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that computer room's still there. But because of technology density, about a quarter of it's actually utilized. Okay. Uh, the air handlers are still there. Um, uh, the power is still there. The generator is still out back, um, but that's infrastructure overhead. And now we're running a fraction of what we used to run. And we're even looking at moving more of that to the cloud, um, which takes us back to people. You know, why? One of the challenges here is we need more people. Well, let's look at the process. Why do you need more people? Well, this team is spending eighty-five percent of their time, literally eighty-five to ninety-five percent of their time, patching and upgrading. But there's so much to do, user workflows are backlogged six months. They're not on the current version. They don't have time to do it because they have to always patch and keep things the security updates because we're under constant bombardment, constant attack. So it's like, okay, what do we do? Well, we can hire a lot of people to do that, or we can look at a better way of doing it. How long have you hosted it? Almost 20 years. Well, have you talked to them about another option? Well, it turns out, yeah, they have a couple of cloud options in which they'll do all the patching, the management. Uh, we can still have all the access control and database uh, direct connects we need. They'll do everything else. Mm -hmm. Why don't we explore that? Because then, without adding any staff, you guys get your time back. You create efficiencies. We get efficiencies, but you can focus on more strategic, higher-level items. 
let them turn their wrenches. We'll just back to audit control and uh, uh, compliance is we can manage them, make sure they're doing what they need to do back at the level they need to do it. And then we can take the rest of our time back to taking care of the user, taking care of the strategy, taking care of the business. Okay. But that's just part of the whole strategic strategy on infrastructure. How do we leverage the infrastructure that's available today? You know, cloud versus on-prem. What's the right? It's not the same for everybody. Uh, again, the last company was pure cloud. Here, I'm somewhere in between. I have a foot and a half on-prem. The rest is in the cloud. Um, every company is going to be a little different. What's good for them? Only very rarely will cloud not benefit somebody. And usually that's because you have 140,000 uh, uh, employees and it's more cost-effective to build your, to build your own. And you're going to build a cloud anyway. It's just going to be a private it's cloud. It's going to be a private cloud. So, but most companies aren't like that. Most companies are in, you have a 50 people or have 100 people or 2,000 people or 10,000 people. And at that point, it's no longer cost-effective to do it all yourself. Sure. It just doesn't make sense. Um, but infrastructure is a big part of it. It's not just the on-premise of cloud and what's the right balance for your organization, for where you are today. It's also always important to think about where do we want to be in five years and 10 years. And the argument there is, and I've had this debate several times, is technology turns over about every two years. So how can I predict where I'm going to be in five years or 10 years? And it's like, it doesn't matter where you think you're going to be. Dream it. What's the direction we're going? You know, I like to say, when you look, think about strategy, it's, it's not how we're going to get there. I can sit there and say, hey, we're in Dallas. We're going to take a vacation next year. Well, great, that's a vision. And hey, we're going to New York City. Okay, that's a strategy. I'm going to go somewhere. I'm not telling you how to do it. We don't know how long we're going to take. We don't know how long we're going to stay. It's just we're heading that direction. We're going to New York. And that defines the decisions we make. It doesn't say we're going to go to the cloud, we're going to do this. We're going to do, it just says we're going to go this direction. And so we start planning out the vacation, working on the tactics. We'll start saying, hey, we're going to drive. We're going to stop in Kentucky and visit Aunt Myrna or whatever else. And you start building your tactics to reach the goal, to make the strategy happen, to get reach that direction. But if you have something else that pops up, say, hey, if we're going to see Aunt Myrna, let's go ahead and see Uncle Bill out in California. Well, that's the wrong direction. It'd be great. Maybe we'll do that some other time. But it's not going to support the strategy and keep us going the right direction. We're, we're in New York. At Myrna's on the way to New York. We'll go to New York. We'll see Uncle Bill some other time. So the strategy and the focus help us define what we do today over the next one or two years. And then every year, you take a fresh look at it. Is New York still the right place? Are we going the right direction? Are we doing the right thing? Do we have to pivot? And so uh, that really that's really what happens with your infrastructure. Uh, what direction are we going? And then every year you take a fresh look, you predict what the future holds, and you, are you still going the right direction? And service and support, the last one. Um, no matter what, the customer service aspect of IT has always been lacking. We've always had a service well, Like you said earlier, we, we grew up being hermits yes. in a dark room. The, I called them code toads. Uh, you just kind of sit behind the, the glowing screens and make some burping sounds once in a while after you're you slug a Diet Coke or a Red Bull. Just feed coffee. Yeah. And I, I still drink a lot of it today. The service support side is what really kind of ties a lot of it together. That's where you get your customer-facing communication. That's the face of IT. That's what people interface with most of the time. 
uh, outside of senior leadership and project management, those are the people people talk to. Those are the people people think are IT. And so it's important for those people to understand they are the face of IT. Make sure you have the teach them how to be a good customer service rep. Don't just teach them how to reset a password or how to troubleshoot a, a networking problem. Teach them customer service. That will go so far because if their, their perception of IT is based upon that customer service level and it's negative, they're not going when they go up the chain in their careers, that's how they're going to think of IT forever. Sure. And so it's also going to invite them to deviate from the policies and procedures IT puts in place that help with governance and, and the audits. So if I don't think I'm going to get support out of you, I'm going to go around you. Exactly. That's where I've got, got to. I got to know that you're here to help me accomplish this goal, which is part of a bigger goal. So it all comes back to alignment. But yeah, that support piece of it, understanding that you know I've, I've got to have some level of empathy towards what somebody's trying to accomplish in their day job, and that they're not actually creating a burden for me because even if it is. A, Feels like a burden sometimes. Without that, you actually don't have a job. Exactly. Number one, and the success of the company, the success of the institution is wholly dependent on that alignment and people being able to work together, right? Bingo. And I think you hit it on the head with empathy. You know, put yourself in the other person's shoes. They're not a technologist. They don't understand what's why this isn't working. They're getting frustrated. Sometimes just know some guy like me said, hey, go take that hill by next Tuesday. <laughs> I got till next Tuesday. Can't even log in. Oh, boy. The, uh, this is the realities. And just put yourself in their shoes. And it goes a long way. Yeah. So being now that you've kind of been all across all these different regulated industries and you've been able to develop these seven pillars, I'm really curious – from a higher education perspective, a lot of change. COVID's accelerated some change. But even before COVID, there's, there's um, you know, people talk about student debt all the time. And there's been somewhat of a movement to just specialize in something and go get a badge. from. So you can go and my, I use my daughter as an example. She's got a psychology degree. And uh, she minored in criminal justice. Within six months after graduation, she went and separately certified project management. She could have gone to school for that. She could have gone back to school for that. But she was able to rapidly do that. And truth be told, she didn't have to. She doesn't need a four-year degree for that. There's a lot of options that are competing with, with higher education, the traditional institutions, whether it's Syracuse, Notre Dame, UT, TAMU, any of them, there's a lot of competition. And for the kind of the argument that people are making, and it comes around a lot with finance right now and student loans is, hey, we were told forever that we needed to go and borrow money and go get this degree and blah, blah, blah. And now there's kind of this growing sentiment or push away from that, which I would imagine is take is creating some level of anxiety within higher education institutions. Why is there something that aligning IT 
can actually help with either dispelling some of those notions or even if the notions are somewhat right, where does IT fit in that value chain of, I don't know the right way to say this, but it, from my perspective, and I'm uninformed on this other than what I read, it seems like there's got to be some level of reinvention of what we think of for colleges and higher education. Uh, that's exactly what they're, they're thinking. It's like, how do we evolve to support tomorrow's student? Not just the student today, not the student we, we, we graduated a few years ago, um, which is c- kind of the mindset of academia. You think about it, it's been around for hundreds or a thousand years, the process of academia and moving things forward and training and teaching and, and having the integrity of that education. And it's been great until technology started changing every two years. You think about a four-year degree, most people take four to six years to, to complete. Well, if you're a technologist, well, it's three renditions of technology turnover, and you learn what it was like 10 years ago. Right. Um, you know, I, I learned Fortran and COBOL and BASIC in 1983 as a kid on that Burroughs mainframe. Mm-hmm. And when I actually started programming in the early 90s, it was not in BASIC, Fortran, or COBOL. But CIS degrees in the early early 90s were still teaching Fortran, BASIC, and COBOL. Um, we had this disconnect between what was happening in business and what was happening in the universities because the pace of change was no longer keeping up with the pace of change outside the university walls. It used to be the change came from within the university walls through the research. And in many cases, uh, science for especially, that still happens. But when it comes to technology, not so much. And, and this goes back to, this is my theory here, this comes back to IT as that service, that black box. One of the things we found uh, at Tarleton is when I started speaking with the deans of the colleges, so, okay, here's what we've come down to college, the IT strategy. I want to talk to you about it. I want to get your input on it. What are your problems? What are your challenges? What do you, what do you see? What are your needs? And uh, we have degrees in uh, economics, in computer information systems, in data science, and we have a new master's in data analytics in the approval queue, which actually takes a couple of years to get through, but it's in the queue. Um, and all of those degree programs require large amounts of data. As a university, we have tremendous volumes of data, but it's not in a way that they can leverage. We also, um, looking at IT, is IT has never usually been looked at as part of the university, part of a strategic partner there. And what we found is we can be that strategic partner. We can support those degree programs. We can support those students by helping them use the same modern-day tools and techniques that they will use when they go into the, enter the workforce. And that would help make them more, more valuable and make those degree programs valuable. Because now that degree is adding value because they're coming out of the university, not just with the theory, but the hands-on knowledge and experience that businesses are looking for. Which is more important now that more and more businesses have entry-level jobs that require three to five years experience. Now the great catch-22. Right. How can I get experience if I can't get an entry-level job? Well, you just need to find it somewhere. Well, no one will hire me because I don't have the experience, but I have the degree. So how can we leverage IT as a strategic partner in the university to give that experience and that value to that student coming out of, out of school so that we can say, yeah, it's worth it? So then you're adding value to graduate services and helping with job placement because you're creating that experience by not only providing a service but providing a vehicle for 
that hands-on. Yeah, and not just for the degree programs, but half my staff are student workers. I have 58 student workers on staff. Yeah. And uh, they're considered part-time because we work around their school schedule, but they're with us for four to six years. So why can't we leverage those students as traditional workers and grow them uh, as we can? Because the other, other part of this is people love Stephenville. They love Tarleton. It's the largest employer in the area. And I am working with probably the most highly educated staff I've ever worked with my entire life. I have two guys within a year of their PhDs. And most have masters. And I'm, I'm feeling kind of puty sometimes when I'm, <laughs> when I'm in, in my meetings. But, uh, but they're, they're great guys. They love this, this university. They, they give it their all. And the challenge is when, when someone retires, someone leaves, a spouse moves away, and they go with them. We lose that talent. It's not a mecca of IT talent to pull from. So finding someone is hard. Sure. And so what we've been looking at is how do we restructure this so that those student workers coming through our program, most of which are taking those computer science programs, we treat them like employees. We give them that same employee experience from an entry level all the way through so that when they graduate, we have positions where we hire, we can pick the best who want to be here. And we've already trained, spent four to six years teaching and training to how to take that entry level run with us and then restructure our group so that there is a pathway from that student first stage of student worker all the way through director and maybe even the CIO so that they can chart their path through retirement because the benefits are really good. Mm-hmm. It's one of those places where if you, you do a good job and you, you watch what you're doing, you can be here for an eternity and retire with great benefits. And so many do. And there's good hunting nearby. Yeah. Hey, there's a lot of things nearby. Um, it's a neat little town. It's actually growing rapidly. Uh, Whole other story. But the the thing there is we can take those students and we can give them that experience. So when they graduate, not only are they using modern-day tools, the same tools they use in, in private industry, but they have that three to five years experience on the resume to get them to get their foot in the door for that entry-level job. Sure. So that's another way we as IT can give back and help support the university strategically because one of their goals is how do we help that student be employable when they when they graduate? And that's one thing we, way we can do it. So you're, you said, interim CIO at Tarleton, part of the Texas A&M system. Do you work for Tarleton, or is that a service provided by another company? Oh, that's a great question. I'm actually with Columbia Advisory Group, or CAG. Okay. Um, and I'm an interim CIO under contract to Tarleton from CAG. Okay. Uh, CAG can actually provide a number of services. We work heavily within the higher education industry. And I'm actually one of two interim CIOs in, in the state of Texas right now. And we can provide not just interim services, but also strategic planning services, evaluations, other other placement help. Uh, for example, here, uh, Tarleton, we are looking for a full-time C- CIO here in the next few months. And we'll be part of that process to help them find the right person to make sure they can continue what we've done the last year. Um, but we can also help them with their their student information systems, with their data, with their security, which is a, a huge thing in higher ed right now. Um, security has put a huge burden on, on these universities, but their budgets haven't grown. And so how do you handle that? 
uh, how do you handle, if you're a smaller school, how do you handle the, the influx of IT needs? Because that smaller school is going to be just like Stevenville. It's a smaller city, which you don't have a lot of talent to pull from. So at CAG, we can actually pull from across the country uh, with, with our staff and help them bring those skills that they need together. Okay. And so is, is it exclusively the higher education at CAG or it's um, That's private a, equity um, uh, it or regulated go, markets? It can go anywhere, really. Um, we just had our start in, in higher ed. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't mean we, we're stuck in higher ed. Uh, in fact, we do some work outside of higher ed these days. Because the same things we do for higher education are the same things we can do for any other industry, any other company. Um, if it's an ERP implementation, if it's uh, getting a handle on your data, if it's getting a handle on your security, um, we we can assist with your staff augmentation. We can be more of a traditional managed service provider for, for you, your help desk or whatever else your needs may be. Um, but there's just an, a number of different ways to leverage CAG as a partner, depending on your situation. And if you don't know, you know, ask, and we can always help. So sometimes it's just we'll have a conversation to see what we can do for you or if we can help you. And if not, we might have some advice for you to get you going in the right direction. Okay, wonderful. Well, Toby, I appreciate you coming in. This is, I love the seven pillars. I think that's probably, I agree with your wife and your daughter, you need to write a book. Well, I'll probably have to, to do some little scribbles at first, but thank mm. you. Well, you just record it and then have somebody else write for you. There you go. You talk about it, have somebody else put pen to paper. So appreciate you coming in, and um, hopefully we can do this again. Cool. Well, Jason, thank you very much. I loved it. Always like chatting about, about what we know and what we've been doing. <laughs> <laughs>